thank you for Jesus, our Savior. We thank you for the ministry of your Holy Spirit in our lives. Uh, The scriptures tell us that we are to pray to you, our Father, by the Spirit in the name of Jesus. And so, Father, we pray, first of all, uh, that you would be exalted here this morning. uh, And beyond that, that Christ would be exalted in our lives as we leave here. That we wouldn't be just Sunday Christians. Uh, We pray, uh, Father, that your word and your spirit would transform our thinking. uh, That we would demonstrate our loyalty to Jesus by the way that we live our lives. Uh, Father, my prayer is that we would embrace our problems. We would embrace our struggles as opportunities to be more sanctified. Uh, Father, it's not just words. It's not just some good teaching when we say that we should look at our struggles through the perspective of Scripture Uh, Not through merely our own human eyes, because we get discouraged when we do that. Uh, We thank you for the lives that have gone before us, that have been recorded in the Bible, uh, that have dealt with many problems in life, maybe even more severe than our own, uh, and have left us an example to follow. Uh, The most or the greatest of which is Jesus, uh, who was underappreciated oftentimes unloved, constantly attacked and undermined, uh, was misjudged, was treated cruelly, was put to death. uh, And yet he never reviled in return. He never lashed out in sinful anger. Uh, He never became depressed or went into despair uh, because, not because his life was not difficult, but because as First Peter chapter 2 tells us, he continually entrusted himself to his heavenly Father who judged righteously. So, Father, teach us to entrust all revenge, all wrath, all retaliation. Help us to put that into your hands. Uh, Father, give us a deep, deep love for people especially for those that do not know you. May we look at others with an eternal perspective, not just through the lens of our own wants and our own needs uh, and our own hurts, uh, but may we follow our Lord's example, who it says in Philippians 2, says, have the same attitude in yourselves, which was in Christ Jesus, who, though being God did not regard equality with God something to be grasped, but he set it aside to become the servant of all. We're to have that same attitude. So, Father, just change our hearts, uh, change our perspectives, change our attitudes. uh, And thank you for speaking to us through your word. Uh, Thank you for not leaving us without guidance. Uh, Father, some of us need to have our stubborn resistance crushed under the lordship of Christ. It's a very difficult process. It's very painful at times. But, Father, may we learn that on the other side of submission is peace. Uh, 
on the other side of bowing to your authority is comfort, is clarity, uh, is blessing, is joy. So, Father, I pray that your word would penetrate our hearts, that your spirit would pursue us uh, until he catches us, uh, until he takes the blinders off so that we can see uh, the sufficiency and the authority of Scripture and we can see the majesty and the comfort uh, and the royal authority of Jesus. Uh, So, Father, my prayer is that you would speak to us through your word, correct our thinking, encourage our hearts, uh, give us the desire to obey you. Give us the desire to offer our bodies as a living sacrifice, as Romans 12:1 says, by responding to others who wrong us in a way that's pleasing to you, in a way that's beneficial to the other. Truly a supernatural thing, and so we need you to do that for us. And uh, we just commit ourselves, our lives, uh, into your hands in Jesus' name. Amen. I could have, I think, spent the whole time praying. Just felt like praying today. Lots to pray about. I don't know about you, but it's chilly in here, and I love it. Uh, and if you're cold, then I would suggest put on some more weight, uh, and then you wouldn't be cold like me. This is my favorite time of year when it's chilly and cloudy. Uh, big guys don't like the heat, so this is nice. I know some of you are probably chilly. I'm trying not to look at you ladies over here. Because I think I see your teeth chattering from up here. So is the screen working or what's the delay here? Thanks. Hey, there's a little logo. I'd like to thank Marie Omedo for drawing that and designing it. So overcoming good with evil. I thought that was kind of cool. The black and white is on the. Huh? Overcoming good with evil. Oops, I'm just seeing if you're listening. Very good. Uh, You guys get an A. All right. Overcoming evil with good. Uh, Oops. Uh, So anyway, thanks anyway, Marie. This passage, Romans 12, 14 through 21, we have to finish this today. So I don't know if we'll finish it, but we're going to finish it. So uh, we'll see how it goes. Verses 14 to 21 about responding To others in a godly way, especially when we are wronged Uh, and it's in a context of persecution. Uh, It's interesting that really from Romans 12, 3, pretty much to the end of the book is all the context of relationships, uh, how we're commanded to interact with different groups of people. Uh, You have brothers and sisters in the church in our passage today. A little bit about interacting with other believers, but a lot about how to interact with an unbeliever who is persecuting us. Romans 13. uh, I think it might be a good time in our world right now to look at Romans 13. How to respond to human government uh, as a believer uh, and all those types of things. Uh, But the word love gets abused uh, in our world. Uh, love is often interpreted as simply a feeling. Um, like with Lisa, I know when I walk past, she's like, ooh, I love him. Uh, you know, I can see it in her eyes. She gets all dreamy uh, when I'm around. 
I hope she's not dreaming about another man, but she looks dreamy. But that's not how love is defined in the scriptures. Uh, In the Bible, and by the example of our Heavenly Father, and by the example of our Lord, and in the words of a DC talk song, love is a verb. If you're really old and you remember old Christian music, you remember love is a verb by DC talk. That's a good song. Anyway, that you got it, Joey. Some of us old guys. Okay, love is action because the scriptures say what? Even one of the most famous, well-known verses in the Bible, John three sixteen, for God so loved the world that he gave action. You see, love is action. Love is Actually doing something that another person needs as defined by scripture. It's not another person telling me what they need and you have to love me this way. It's, you know, love does have boundaries and structure that we see in the scriptures. But love doing what is best for another according to how God defines that. So when we saw First John uh, and First John 4, 7 and 8. Uh, Beloved, let us love one another, for God is of love. And everyone that is born of God knows God and loves God. He that does not love does not know God, for God is love. Uh, So God is always taking action on our behalf, isn't he? Uh, And that's showing love. And it's always what we need. Uh, It may not be what we want, but it's always an act of love. Because the scriptures also say what God does what to those whom he loves in the book of Hebrews? Yeah, I heard a little whisper because we don't like it. Discipline, discipline, discipline. Yeah. God disciplines those he loves. And the scriptures say the parent who does not discipline his child doesn't really love his child. Because discipline is a mark of love. Uh, and that's, you know, God does that for us sometimes. So this Romans 12, 14 through 21, if you've been with us. Uh, is really about responding in love. We know that verse 9 of chapter 12, let love be without hypocrisy, is the center of this passage. Uh, That we're driven to love those who persecute us. We're driven by love. uh, A love that goes far beyond our needs uh, and our rights and those types of things to what the other person needs. Uh, And without this Shift in focus, verse 21, remember, is the goal. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. Without the shift in focus, it's impossible to return good for evil. Because when we begin to think about the enslaving sin and welfare of our persecutor enough to pray and bless him, that is when we begin to travel the way of compassion like Jesus. Because remember in Luke 6, uh, Jesus was talking about Uh, If you love those who love you, what is that to your account? It's only when you love those who persecute you that you are truly showing yourself to be my disciple. Uh, And if you're like me, uh, you enjoy good Bible teaching, but you also know that then the Lord's going to give you opportunities to practice it. (laughs) And we've had opportunities this week uh, to practice this. So I'm sure many of you have. Uh, opportunity as well. In verse 14, we have already looked at uh, it starts with our communication when we are persecuted or wrong. Bless those who persecute you, bless and do not curse. 
the way of love places an emphasis on the other person, not on myself. Uh, this is the way to bless, not curse. Our concern must be what we can, what can I do for him, not what can I do to him. Uh, because that's usually our first response, right? Uh, how can I respond in a way that does him, meaning my persecutor, the most good? I know some of you are looking at me like I'm from Mars. Uh, you know, being a follower of Jesus, if it's done properly, is a very radical lifestyle. Uh, and we look at these things and we say, you're asking me to do the impossible. Uh, God never commands us to do anything that he does not enable us to do. And by the way, we need to take more seriously the examples that are left for us in the scriptures. Uh, they're not just stories for our entertainment. Uh, when we look at Jesus, when we look at Paul, when we look at others uh, all throughout the whole Bible. Uh, and we'll see in a moment that those things are written for our instruction uh, to teach us. Uh, but these things are impossible. It's, it's really a challenge because really these kinds of commands make us uncomfortable because they reveal our real heart. Uh, they reveal our weaknesses. Uh, they reveal maybe our true agenda uh, for being a Christian. Uh, and I think when we're unmasked, it makes us a little uncomfortable. Uh, hey, I'm the first to confess I fail miserably at Romans 12, 14 to 21. Some of you in this room are trying not to say amen right now when I say that. But what I also like about this Romans 12 passage is that it's within the context of a community, of a church family, that we don't try and do this together. I mean, by ourselves, we do this together. Uh, we'll see more about that in a moment. So if someone is persecuting me, then clearly he needs help. And I should be thinking, here's a person that is far from God. And what can I do? What can I say in this situation to bring this person closer to God? So I leave the care for myself to God because he is concerned about me and he does care for me. That's undeniable. As God's focus is on me, I can put my focus on the welfare of even my persecutor. Uh, that's what it means to follow Jesus. That's what it means to be a disciple. And we say, how can I do this? That sounds impossible. Well, here are some things that can help us get started. How can I do this? Romans 12, 14 to 21. It sounds so hard. First of all, I'm made aware of my responsibility by hearing God's word when I read it. And by the way, just because something goes into my ear doesn't mean that I hear it. Is that correct? I'm glad nobody said, huh? Uh, that's what we do at our house. Someone says, I, I didn't hear what you said. And the person says, huh? Jesus says what? Many times in the Gospels. Let he who has ears to hear, hear. Even he realized I know I'm talking, but I also know the words are going in there, but I also know you're not hearing <laughs> what I'm saying. But I have an awareness the Holy Spirit actually brings conviction, which is number two. I read the word or I hear the word or I'm taught the word and all of a sudden I come under conviction. And by the way, if that happens to you, 
you stop and you praise God because it is an affirmation that you are truly born again. Only a true child of God feels the weight of conviction when he or she hears the word. Uh, So, yeah, it's a conviction. It's a burden. We feel low about ourselves. But the good news is that's a sign that you really do know the Lord. Uh, That's a good thing. Then that conviction leads to correction. Okay, I'm going to change my thinking. I'm going to change my way. Uh, And I do that, first of all, by confessing that before the Lord. Uh, And then changing my way, that's what repentance is. Then number four, which is where most of us, I think, have the biggest problem. It's the discipline training, you know, to... Uh, do things the godly way. In our passage today, responding to someone who is bent on persecuting me or bent on just causing me as much trouble as possible, I, I blow it. Uh, they said something to me and I just explode it. Uh, the very first verse, verse 14, I did not bless the one who was persecuting me. I cursed him instead. I blew it. But here's the thing. The scriptures talk about not earthly perfection but earthly progress in our faith and when the bible talks about victory or being an overcomer one thing that means is my eternal life is secure if i place my faith in christ that even my own sin cannot detach me from eternal life in christ but the second thing that means is to be an overcomer is that I continue to grow in my obedience to the scriptures over the course of my life. It doesn't mean that I'm going to be perfect and sinless in this life, but it means I love the Lord so much that I want to obey his commands. And when I blow it, I also take care of that in a way that's pleasing to the Lord. You know, I think you guys have to help me. It's in the Psalms or maybe the Proverbs. It says a righteous man falls down seven times. But he also gets back up seven times. Uh, there's that commitment to keep going. You know, Timothy talks about the Bible, talks about scripture and that it's perfect tool for training in righteousness. It's almost like we have training wheels. We thought that we were done with those, uh, but we still have those training wheels on. So what do I do? What steps do I take? If I'm struggling with responding to ungodliness with godliness. So if you're cursed or someone is persecuting you in a sense. First of all, if I blow it, I seek forgiveness from God and from the one who I blew it with. And I believe that it's biblical to actually say and ask for forgiveness. I don't think it's as biblical to just say I'm sorry. Because I think to say, will you please forgive me, actually puts the ball back in the other person's court and involves them in the reconciliation process. And the person may say, not on your best day, dude. And I would say, okay, but I can have peace with God because I know I did what I was supposed to do. Some of you are smiling. Some of you have asked forgiveness and the person has said, (laughs) Not today. You know, get back with me later. But you know what? You've done the right thing uh, by asking for forgiveness. Ask God to forgive you if you've been focused on yourself and not on the other person. 
uh, who has wronged you. That's clear in this passage. Then this passage, and this is review. If you haven't been with us the last few weeks, uh, we've been talking about this. Number three, we need to begin to think about how to do this person good. Not to say, I, you know, I forgive you and then walk away and detach. Number four, we pray specifically. Notice how that's underlined. Specifically for this person and for his good. And then this passage teaches that we need to plan ahead the good things that we're going to say or the good things that we're going to do. This passage teaches that there needs to be a plan that's thought out. I need to think, okay, this is going to be an ongoing problem with this person. What am I going to say the next time this person comes at me? Or what am I going to do the next time this person comes at me? And not just what am I going to do, what am I going to say? What am I going to say, what am I going to do that's going to be for his good? You guys, <laughs> okay, you guys are like, mm. So then he says in verse 15, rejoice with those who rejoice and weep with those who weep. Why would he move into this? It sounds a little, first I'm blessing someone who's persecuting me, but now he switches to relationships that have conflict uh, involving other believers. Verses 15 and 16 are talking more about believer to believer. So when he says rejoice with those who rejoice and weep with those who weep, he says, in order, to over, in order to overcome evil with good, we have to serve alongside others. And we have to be involved in each other's lives, both in the victories and the trials. Uh, we can't learn to do good to those who do us evil unless we're learning to do good to our fellow Christians. See what he's saying? Uh, in the church family, it's a great place to practice on how to respond. Because how I respond to you when you wrong me as a believer in Christ, it's a lot different than how or what happens when an unbeliever is wronging me, you know, because you and I can immediately enter into a process of peacemaking and reconciliation. If you know the Lord, it's a big difference. We don't have time to go there, but sometime read through Luke 15. A great example of rejoicing with those who rejoice, because sometimes as believers, we don't always rejoice with our brothers and sisters in Christ when good and wonderful things happen to them. Sometimes we get our nose a little out of joint. Uh, we get a little jealous. Uh, we say, Lord, why do good things always happen to him? What's so great about him? Uh, OK, never mind. See, I'm filtering. When I, when I smile and I giggle, it's because I'm filtering. Okay. <laughs> uh, I'm, I don't have a good filter either, so I know you like that too. But notice there's the story of the lost sheep. And then there's the story of that lost coin. And then, of course, the story of the prodigal son. Uh, which really that story is not really about the son. That's not the focus. You know, the focus of that story is on the father. Uh, and that forgiving, loving, selfless attitude that that father had for that son that just treated him like dirt, took off, didn't work out, so he comes back home. Then you kind of think of Romans 12, 14 through 21. How would you respond if your child did that to you? But that father, what does he do? He celebrates, 
What does that woman do who finds the coin? Celebrates. What happens in heaven when that one sheep is found? Celebration. So, when good things happen to bad Christians, <laughs> we need to learn. We can practice this Romans 12 passage by celebrating the good that has happened. Sometimes when a brother or sister in Christ wrongs us, we're not really that thrilled when others are trying to restore and help. We're thinking, after what he did to me, you guys are worried about him. What about me? Well, he's going to address that as we keep moving through here. So training and overcoming evil with good means identification with our brothers and sisters in Christ in both positive and negative situations. You know, it is really phenomenal. Because of our culture, because of the way we do church in America, for many of us, we only do church up to a certain point. When I say church, capital C, church as a group of believers, not a building. In other words, even with the head pastor, some of you only let me into your lives to a certain point. And then the door closes. Uh, and we try to often give the impression that either everything's okay or we want to do this on our own uh, because of pride, because of embarrassment uh, or whatnot. Uh, but Paul is very clear. Weep with those who weep. You know what that's saying? That's saying in the hard times and sometimes even in the ugly times. We need to do those things together as a church family. Listen, we're all people in need trying to help people in need. <laughs> I mean, we're all in the same boat. I know you think that I'm pretty close to perfect. Because I'm your pastor. Who was I talking to in the copy room? Maybe it was Judy earlier in the week. Oh, but we were joking about, uh, how are you? I'm good. And I, a lot of times I'll say this to people. Are you sure? I don't know if I believe you. She goes, no, I'm good. I'm putting on my church face. I said, but what about if you didn't have your church face on? She goes, well, then it's not so good. So what we were just talking about, uh, how sometimes we have two sides. We have our church side of us. Then we have the other side of how we are when we're not here. Uh, and we don't like even our closest church family to see that other side. Uh, but, hey, things get ugly sometimes. But you know what? Uh, we're still forgiven. Uh, there's still hope. And we're supposed to be helping one another. Go to chapter 15. I know we're not getting done with this today, but we'll have to finish it. So Romans 15, one through four. Rejoice with those who rejoice, weep with those who weep. Now, we who are strong ought to bear with the weaknesses of those who are without strength. And he's talking spiritually in handling the problems of life. And we shouldn't just live to please ourselves. Each of us is to please his neighbor. He's talking about brothers and sisters in Christ within the church for his good to his edification. And the word edification means spiritual strengthening. And here's our motivation, our example for even Christ did not please himself. But as it is written, the reproaches of those who reproached you fell on me. 
And for whatever was written in earlier times was written for our instruction so that through perseverance and the encouragement that comes from Scripture, we might have hope. Scripture gives us encouragement to get through the hard times. So we who are strong ought to bear, but this is the rejoice in the weeping with one another. We who are spiritually strong ought to bear the weaknesses of those who are not as spiritually strong. And that could point to one of two things, meaning spiritually strong at all times. This person is just a strong believer at all times through the good and the bad. Or it could mean I may be spiritually strong at the moment, but there's going to be a time when I'm facing something and I'm going to struggle and I'll be weaker. And so you see what I'm saying? It could be referring to someone who's always this way or there are times when we're not as strong if the Lord's taking us through something. It's interesting if you set the context for this. Chapter 14, he says, don't despise or condemn other Christians when they have personal convictions. He's not talking about doctrine. He's talking about wisdom issues. And then he says, we don't want to hinder the conduct of other Christians. Uh, Once again, on wisdom issues. Uh, Because for some of us, we might think, well, I can't believe he went to see that movie. A Christian doesn't belong in that movie. Well, maybe he's not there yet to that point. So we've got to be careful how we handle that is his point. Now, some movies obviously are clear cut, but maybe there's, you know, a wisdom issue. And it doesn't have to be a movie, music, whatever. Then he says in chapter 15, we imitate Jesus by ministering to others first, not ourselves. Wow, that's I have a hard time even letting that come out of my mouth because that's not our first inclination, is it? But as I study the life of the Lord, uh, that was the example that he set for us. He he had a total disregard for his own comfort, his own needs, uh, his own agenda. He was constantly uh, serving his heavenly father. He was constantly ministering to others. uh, And that's our role model. So those that are strong in conviction, strong in conscience ought And it's the present tense there. When he says ought to bear with those that are spiritually weaker, that word is literally saying continuously bearing. That should be the constant attitude we have. Uh, A constant attitude of encouraging, helping, strengthening those who are struggling at the moment. And this is one of the reasons I praise God for problems. Within the family of God, I may not be currently having a struggle or a problem, but I can guarantee that at least one or two or three others are. And so God gives us opportunities to grow in Christ by practicing things like this. So here's my point. We look around at our church family. We know certain people are struggling. Do we run toward those people to help or do we run away from those people because it's a bother? So we think, well, what did Jesus do when Jesus saw your deep spiritual need? Did he run toward you to help or did he run away from you because it was something he didn't want to deal with? Yeah. Sorry, you guys, that's a little bit of a downer. But in a good way. Here's how it literally reads in the Greek. 
New Testament was written in Greek. The word ought is first in the sentence. That's very important. Because the word ought is an extremely strong, forceful word. And remember, it's in the present tense, meaning continually. It reads like this. Ought then we that strong the infirmities of the weak to bear and not ourselves, please. How cool. And it also puts self at the end uh, in the original. But the point here is that the word ought is first. Very strong. That it just makes sense for the Christian to follow the example of the Lord when it comes to ministering to other people. To bear with the failings, the weaknesses, and infirmities of the weak or the non-strong. Uh, don't despise them, but bear with them continually. If you're spiritually strong, you shouldn't be seeking to please yourself, but seeking to help those less strong than yourself. I like that translation of the verse. If God, by his grace, has made you spiritually strong in your convictions and in your conscience, he has done that so that you can then help others who aren't there yet or help a brother or sister through a time. There may be a brother or sister who is normally strong in the Lord, but they're facing a real difficult thing. And at the moment, they're a little weak. We should be running toward those people. The last clause there is the key, not to please ourselves. A Christian should not be self-centered, but should be concerned about the spiritual welfare of others. The word bear, when he says bear with the weaknesses, it means to pick up and carry a weight. To pick up and carry a weight. It makes me think of me going to the gym in the mornings with my son. It's embarrassing uh, for me and him, I think. He's doing all this CrossFit stuff. He's like, oh, my word. I've seen I've seen very slender ladies lifting more weight than me. It's embarrassing. Uh, I'm intimidated by the gym. I'm a new gym person. I do the old man workout. But I mean, Jay, my gosh, she puts all this weight on. I probably couldn't even I, I couldn't even budget. But he like picks it up. Squat. He's got it up here. His face is turned purple. He looks like Beauregard and Willy Wonka when she ate that thing. I was like, dude. And he's like, well, how much are you putting on there? Well, let's do the 20s. Um, Some are stronger than others. Some can carry more weight of others than others. Right? But we all... And Jay said to me, he goes, well, if it's too heavy, just <laughs> so embarrassing. Well, just bench press the bar with no weight on it. OK. OK. But we all should be able to carry or bear something, right? Uh, if you can't put any weight on there, at least carry the bar. Go back to Romans uh, or 15 still says helping others is not the end in itself. We don't help just for the sake of helping. We're helping to edify, to strengthen, to build someone up spiritually. Following Jesus example. So when we help someone, yes, if they have a physical, earthly, material, financial need and we can help, then we want to do that. But that's not always the most important thing. The most important help is to strengthen them in Christ during their weak time. 
The spiritually strong are not simply to tolerate the weaknesses of other brothers and sisters in Christ, but we are to help shoulder their burdens by showing loving, practical consideration to them. I think sometimes stronger believers tempted to have contempt uh, or an air of superiority uh, to someone who's struggling. We're like, what, what is their problem? Why don't they just suck it up and get over it? What's the deal? Uh, that's that's not bearing someone else's burden. And what I like about this, too, is that the scriptures tell us that the Lord stooped down low to strengthen us. We should stoop down low to help strengthen others. We should follow his example. Christ's ultimate purpose was to please God and accomplish his will. He did this by sacrificially ministering to others even to the point of death. Christ, this connects with our Romans 12 passage. Paul quotes Psalm 69 here in Romans 15. Christ was insulted and despised by others because of his association with God the Father. That's what's happening when you go back to Romans 12. Being persecuted because of your identification with Jesus. Uh, Your desire to be pleasing to him. Your desire to do his will. It says we can keep on having hope as we look to all those examples in the Old Testament. So back to Romans 12, when Paul says rejoice with those who rejoice and weep with those who weep, he means we need to develop empathy for others that grows from allowing their concerns to overlap our own and sometimes their concerns to even supersede or go above our own. That's Christ's attitude toward us. Sometimes I set aside Myself, my conveniences, uh, what would make it easier for me in order to help someone who's struggling. That's also practice for how we learn how to overcome evil with good. To rejoice and weep with others, it means we have to become involved with others who are fighting at our side. It's a command of Jesus. Love demands that you cannot go it alone. God created us as social creatures. One writer said this. He said, one of the greatest problems Christians have today is a lack of fellowship with one another. To rejoice and weep as we should with other Christians means we must cultivate close ties with those in and around us in the church. It means much more than once a week. So we ask ourselves, how well tuned am I to the needs of others in Christ? Am I so wrapped up in my own concerns that I don't have time to be concerned about others? That's what Paul's emphasizing here. Moving on to 1216. It says, be of the same mind toward one another. Talk about within the church, believer to believer. Do not be haughty in mind, but associate with it says the lowly. A better translation would be lowly things. Be willing to associate with lowly things. Do not be wise in your own estimation. So Christians in the church must stand together. Unity grows out of a cultivation of mutual sensitivity and concern. We enter into what others are going through and we enter into what they're going through so deeply That we faithfully guide them with biblical truth on how to get through what they're going through. When I put chili three way, uh, that verse 16 gives us three 
things to be aware of. There are three things that might keep us from getting involved with others. Three things that might keep us from rejoicing with those who rejoice and mourning with those who mourn. I was also thinking of chili three-way at Steak and Shake, where they put the noodles and the chili and the cheese. Anyway, so, yeah, I've been thinking about Steak and Shake a lot. So, But if you do these things, then you create chilliness in your relationships. So that's kind of what I, okay, never mind. All right, he says, first of all, be of the same mind. This isn't saying that we should all think exactly alike. He's talking more about our attitude. We should have the same attitude toward God, toward Christ, toward the world, toward one another. We should have similar goals as a church family, aspirations. Because we have the same Bible, we have the same spirit, we have the same foe. We should have the same goal to glorify God and exalt Christ. And he's saying be impartial with every single person in the church. We're all in this together, he's saying. We have the same goals, you know, the same Bible. We unify around the same teaching. We're headed in the same direction. We can't overcome evil with good if we're not in harmony, because Satan likes to divide and conquer. He likes to get us fighting among each other because that debilitates the church uh, and we defeat ourselves. That Philippians passage is a great passage talking about unity. Uh, Based on having the same mind. He says, don't be haughty, but associate with lowly things. He's saying the proper attitude of humility and willingness to do the lowly work of Christ will eliminate a lot of difficulties in relationships within the church. Let Christ do the exalting. We need to be content and have joy where God has placed us in his church. Because that's how we'll overcome Evil with good. If we're serving together and we have harmony and everyone has joy and contentment in what God has called him to do in the church. You know, everybody has a role to play uh, placed there uh, by God. And then he says another thing that a third thing that will hurt. Is when we're wise in our own estimation. One person said, remember that the sun doesn't rise and set on you alone. Pride will convince someone that he's got it right and everybody else has it wrong. Pride will refuse to submit to help from other people and will refuse to submit to counsel. Pride likes to say, I'm going to do it on my own. I'm going to do it my own way. But the Bible clearly teaches that interdependence is crucial. The whole thing in First Corinthians 12, you know, the hand cannot say to the eye, I don't need you, you know, and the the. I can't say to the head, I don't need you either. Uh, Everybody has a part to play. And by the way, God never initiated the Lord's church for us to just come on Sunday mornings for a couple hours and to sit. The church was instituted as a place to live, as a place to serve as a place to strengthen, as a place to give. Uh, And I even told my own son this recently. I graduated from college. That's a hard transition. Out of high school into the world is hard. Uh, And then if you go to college, out of college into the world, that's a hard transition. Uh, But I told him, you know, it's not enough just to be going to church on Sundays. Uh, The Lord's very clear that you need to be involved because you have spiritual gifts 
Uh, you're supposed to be strengthening others. You're supposed to be in relationship with other believers. There's no extra charge for that bonus. Okay. Verse 17, he says, never. We're going to finish this. Never pay back evil for evil to anyone. Respect what is right in the sight of all men. Never an absolute command. There are two absolute commands in this passage. Verse 19 also says, never take your own revenge. We don't like absolutes. Absolutes give us no wiggle room whatsoever. No excuses, no blame shifting. It is what it says. Never take your own revenge. Never pay back evil with evil. Well, how can I do that? When he says do what is right, the text is saying make plans to do what is right. Paul is saying no emotionally charged responses are allowed when you are wrong. You have to have a plan. What will I do? How will I do it? I have to make the effort to plan ahead. And he says to do what is right. That word means to do what is fine, what is beautiful, what is good in the situation when you're being wronged. We won't go there, but 1 Thessalonians 5.15 tells us to seek after peace with everyone. And the word seek there in 1 Thessalonians 5 is talking about hard work, diligent effort, not taking any shortcuts. That if we want peace with others, especially someone who's bent on my destruction, that it's really going to take some effort and hard work on my part. Sorry, do I need to stay there for a minute? I'm trying to roll through here. We're going to skip that. But he says to do what is right or fine or beautiful in the eyes of all men. He doesn't mean that we're trying to be man pleasers. He's more concerned with the effect of my response when I'm wronged. In other words, when I'm wronged by someone who's bent on my destruction or my ill will, he wants to see bad things for me. How I respond, the Lord is concerned with the fact that my response of doing what is good and saying what is good for him will have some kind of effect. That my response is so godly and so good that even the unbelieving persecutor is forced to say, wow, that's good. He may not say it to me, but my behavior, my response is forcing him to either think or to say, wow, that's something. He's going to see Christ in the way I respond. Verse 18, almost done here. Paul says, if possible, as far as it depends on you, be at peace with all men. See, Paul is realistic. This is not an absolute like in verses 17 and 19. He says, if it's possible, as far as it depends on you, we can always win the battle with evil by responding with good. We can always win inner peace within our own hearts by doing what we should. But we may not always win peace with our enemy because it's not 100 percent in our own hands, is it? But we're still told to pursue peace, that that is always the goal, that overcoming evil with good is the first step. Then we are to relentlessly pursue peace. Not stopping until we get it. But Paul says, with an unbeliever particularly, we don't have the same reconciliation process, so we have to make sure that we're responding in a really biblical way. 
So we are free to do good because our actions and our responses are not dependent on the actions and responses of the person persecuting me. We're not controlled by others. We're controlled by Christ and his commands. If you have done all that Christ required of you, then you can be at peace with the person who is persecuting you. You see what he's saying? I want you to do everything within your power to be at peace with this person. But realize he still may not want that. But you must still continually pursue it. Verse 19, just two verses left. Never take your own revenge, beloved, but leave room for the wrath of God, because it is written, vengeance is mine, I will repay. Never are we allowed to be a Christian vigilante. God puts limitations on our authority and on our ability as individuals. When we take revenge, what we're really doing is we're usurping God's authority. Revenge for the Christian is a lawless act of rebellion. Because when he uses the word wrath, leave room for God's wrath, that is a legal judicial term. And only the righteous judge can delegate who can bring wrath on offenders. And God says the individual Christian does not have that authority. He does give some authority to human government. He's entrusted all authority for wrath into the hands of Jesus on the appointed day. So if I'm taking my own personal revenge against someone, then I am clearly outside of God's will. That's not the way to go. Now, verse 20, we'll wrap this up. If your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he's thirsty, give him something to drink, because in doing this, you will heap burning coals on his head. Don't get excited. This is not punishment. You think, oh, good, he's finally going to get what he deserves. Give me those coals. No. The coals are your good deeds. And notice that he says heap good deeds upon your enemy. In other words, to do good to your enemy means that you're meeting a pressing need for someone who has made it his full time job to make you miserable. Yeah, I heard it. Mm. That's holy. Those are holy words. Mm. It's true. Your good deeds are the coals upon his head. They're not punishment. You are to heap good deeds upon him. That means thoroughly over time with the goal of winning him to Christ. Romans 2 verse 4. Do you show contempt for the riches of God's kindness, patience, and tolerance? Not realizing that God's patience leads you to repentance. Last slide. So think about this this week. I know we went over time. Who is doing evil against you? How have you responded? First of all, do you need to seek God's forgiveness because you've responded in a way that you know is not according to his word? Repentance is key. Repentance before the Lord. There can never be any growth any peace, any calmness, any joy, any blessing until there is first repentance. And in every conflict, there is never one innocent and one guilty. I don't know if I've ever seen it. 
Now, one person may be being victimized more than another. And on rare occasions, uh, in pretty severe, heinous situations, a person is innocent. Uh, but in the normal conflicts of relationships, I've, I don't know if I've ever seen where one of the parties was not guilty in some way, shape, or form. And there has to be repentance in order to move forward. Then you plan how you will respond in the future according to God's word. Then you think about what does your enemy need? No, he doesn't need a brick upside the head. That's what you're thinking. I know what he needs. He needs a swift kick in the rear end. And I'm just the one to give it to him. Lord, use my foot. Uh, no. Let's not. Let's not. It's not revenge. It's not retaliation. What does this person need who is bent on your destruction? And then you persist in doing good because your goal for him is to see him reconcile to Christ. Because love drives the whole process. Let's stand together and pray. Lord, I know I've kept us a long time this morning, but I, I know that's okay with you. Uh, we wanted to finish this today, Father. Uh, I realize these are hard words. These are hard words for me. These are hard words for even the most godly person. But the challenge is that these words sift through our own hearts. Uh, these words help us to see ourselves and to see how deep is our love for you. And how loyal we are to follow your example. Father, my prayer is that we would look beyond our own hurts. We would look beyond our own anger. We would look beyond our own disappointment. To first of all. Do what's pleasing to you as our savior, because we can't go wrong with that. And number two, that we would look to do what is good for the person who is wronging us. That doesn't mean a green light to continue to hurt us. But it certainly means not taking revenge, not taking retaliation. Not making demands from our own agenda. But Father, this is really, we understand this is the essence of what it means to live as a follower of Christ. And I think what we find out sometimes is we're not as devoted to Christ as maybe we thought we were. We find out that we're really more devoted to ourselves and we're more devoted to what Christ can do for us. But Father, open our eyes. Energize the core of our being with a passionate hunger to follow our Lord's example. Because that pulls us into a very close relationship with him. When we do the things he did, when we say the things he said, when we respond to our persecutors the way he did, he pulls us close to himself. That's where we find the joy. That's where we find the peace. That's where we find the blessing. That's where the pain and the hurt and the anger start to melt away. In his presence. So, Father, thank you uh, for teaching us these things, for bringing these things to our attention. May we seek to persist to integrate them into our lives. May they not just be words on a page. May they actually come into our mind at the moment 
that we're being wronged. And may we just consciously submit our will and our thoughts and our desires to your lordship. We may not feel like it, but we can do it out of duty. Because we want to demonstrate to the world uh, that we are true followers of Jesus. And we want to show the world that we love them. We want to show those who persecute us that there are more important, deeper issues than our own comfort, our own hurts, our own pain. And may our radical example bring others to a saving knowledge of Christ. And like the angels who rejoice in heaven when one person is saved, may we rejoice as well. Thanks for our time together. We praise you. We thank you for every good thing that has come our way. And it's in our Lord's precious name, Jesus, that we pray. Amen. Thanks for being here today. And uh, have a great week. And we do meet on Wednesday nights. So feel free to join us.